Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode, which is the second in the surgery series, I'm going to be talking about pre-operative care. And you can find written notes on this topic at zerodefinals.com slash pre-op or in the general surgery section of the Zero to Finals surgery book. So let's get straight into it. Before going to theatre for an operation, there are a number of things that need to be checked off. And these include the pre-operative assessment or pre-op, consent for the operation, blood tests including a group and save or cross match in case a transfusion is needed, the patient needs to be fasted, there may need to be some medication changes and they need a venous thromboembolism risk assessment. Let's start by talking about the pre-operative assessment. Patients need to be assessed to determine whether they're fit to undergo the specific operation that's being proposed. This involves exploring their comorbidities or their other health conditions, their risk of having an anaesthetic, their frailty status and their cardiorespiratory baseline fitness. Therefore, they need a full history of their past medical problems, previous surgery, previous adverse responses to anaesthetics, medications that they're on, any allergies that they have, their smoking status and how much alcohol they drink. Pregnancy needs to be considered in women of childbearing age. Consider asking about a family history of sickle cell disease before any operation and perform a general examination to look for cardiovascular and respiratory disease. Patients who may be malnourished, for example, if their BMI is under 18.5 or they've had significant unintentional weight loss, may need input from a dietitian and additional nutritional support before surgery and during the admission. Let's talk about the ASA grade. And this refers to the American Society of Anesthesiologists, or ASA, grading system which classifies the physical status of the patient for anaesthetic. Patients are given a grade to describe their current fitness level prior to undergoing a general anaesthetic or having surgery. ASA 1 refers to a normal healthy patient. ASA 2 refers to mild systemic disease. ASA 3 refers to severe systemic disease. ASA 4 refers to severe systemic disease that constantly threatens their life. And ASA 5 refers to moribund patients that are expected to die without the operation. ASA 6 refers to patients that are declared brain dead and they're undergoing an organ donation operation before they die. There's also an E grade that can be given for emergency operations where there's not enough time to do a proper assessment of their ASA grade. Let's talk about preoperative investigations. There are nice guidelines from 2016 on the routine preoperative test for elective surgery. Outline the routine investigations that are required prior to surgery, and these are based on individual patient factors and the size of the operation. There may also be local guidelines in the hospital that you're working at which determine which tests are appropriate for patients in that particular area. If in doubt, it's worth getting advice from an anaesthetist. 
Investigations that may be required prior to surgery depend on the comorbidities. An ECG is required if there's known or possible cardiovascular disease. An echocardiogram may be required if there are heart murmurs, cardiac symptoms or heart failure. Lung function tests may be required if there's known or possible respiratory disease. Arterial blood gas testing may also be required if there's known or possible respiratory disease. A HbA1c blood test within the last three months is required for people with known diabetes. Eusenes or urea and electrolytes for kidney function is important in patients who are at risk of developing an acute kidney injury during the operation. A full blood count may be required if there's possible anemia, cardiovascular or kidney disease. And clotting testing may be required if there's known or possible liver disease, as liver disease can affect clotting. It's worth going through group and save and cross match, as these terms can be a bit confusing when you first hear them. A group and save refers to sending off a sample of the patient's blood to establish their blood group. The sample is saved in case they require blood to be matched to them for a blood transfusion. A group and save is done routinely where there is a lower probability that they will require blood products. No blood is assigned to the patient at this stage when they have a group and save. Cross-matching involves the process of actually taking a unit or more of blood off the shelf and assigning it to the patient in case they need it quickly. This is done where there is a higher probability that they will require blood products so that the blood is ready to go if required. MRSA screening is routinely performed on all patients being admitted to hospital. This is usually arranged automatically by the nursing staff so you don't need to think about it too much. Let's talk about fasting before surgery. Patients undergo fasting before surgery to ensure that they have an empty stomach for the duration of the operation. This aims to reduce the risk of reflux of food during the surgery, which subsequently can result in the patient aspirating their stomach contents into their lungs. Fasting before an operation typically involves six hours of no food or feeds prior to an operation and two hours of no clear fluids prior to the operation, which is described as fully nil by mouth. A tom tip for you at this stage, when you assess an acutely unwell surgical patient, always consider whether there is any possibility they're going to require emergency surgery. Acutely unwell surgical patients that potentially require emergency surgery are made nil by mouth and given maintenance IV fluids. Allowing them to eat and drink could have significant consequences if they need emergency surgery and the anaesthetist and senior surgeon won't be happy. This decision will often be reversed on the post-take ward round if the consultant or the senior surgeon decides that they're unlikely to need to go to theatre. Let's talk about specific medications that may need changing prior to an operation. Always follow local guidelines for medication alterations before and after an operation. Anticoagulants obviously need to be stopped before major surgery because there's a risk of patients bleeding. 
an INR can be monitored in patients on warfarin to ensure it returns to normal before the operation. Warfarin can be rapidly reversed using vitamin K in acute scenarios. Remember that warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist and that's how it works. So giving vitamin K reverses the effects of warfarin. Treatment dose low molecular weight heparin or an unfractionated heparin infusion can be used to bridge the gap between stopping warfarin and surgery in patients that are high risk. For example, if they have mechanical heart valves or recent venous thromboembolism. Then this high-dose low-molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin can be stopped shortly before surgery depending on the risk of bleeding and the risk of thrombosis. DOACs, which are direct-acting oral anticoagulants, for example apixaban, rivaroxaban or dabigatran, are stopped 24 to 72 hours before surgery depending on the half-life of the individual drugs, the procedure and the patient's kidney function. Oestrogen-containing contraception, for example the combined oral contraceptive pill, or hormone replacement therapy in perimenopausal women, need to be stopped four weeks before surgery to reduce the risk of venous thromboembolism. And this is in the NICE guidelines from 2010. This is because giving additional oestrogen increases the risk of a thrombus forming or a blood clot forming, and if you combine that with major surgery the risk becomes too high. If a patient is on long-term corticosteroids equivalent to more than 5 mg of oral prednisolone, they require additional management around the time of surgery. Surgery adds additional stress to the body which normally increases the natural steroid production. In patients on long-term steroids, there's adrenal suppression, meaning they don't produce as much of their own natural steroids. And this adrenal suppression prevents them from creating the extra steroids that they need to deal with the stress of the operation. Management of patients on long-term corticosteroids involves additional IV hydrocortisone at induction when they're first given the anaesthetic and then further IV hydrocortisone for the immediate post-operative period, for example the first 24 hours. They also need doubling of their normal dose of steroids once they're eating and drinking again for the first 24 to 72 hours depending on the operation. Let's talk about patients with diabetes who are going for an operation. The stress of surgery naturally increases blood sugar levels. However, fasting for the surgery may lead to hypoglycemia. In general, the risk of hypoglycemia is greater than the risk of hyperglycemia. So low blood sugar levels are more dangerous than high blood sugar levels over the short term. Certain oral anti-diabetic medications need to be adjusted or omitted around the time of surgery. Sulfonylureas, for example, glyclozide, can cause hypoglycemia or a low blood sugar level. And so they need to be omitted in patients that are fasting until they're eating and drinking again. Metformin is associated with lactic acidosis, particularly in patients with renal impairment, so it needs to be used with caution. And SGLT2 inhibitors, for example dapagliflozin, 
can cause diabetic ketoacidosis in dehydrated or acutely unwell patients. So again needs to be used with caution. Additional management is required for patients that are taking insulin subcutaneously when they go for surgery and always follow the local guidelines and local policy on how to manage these patients. They need to continue a lower dose of their long-acting insulin and the BNF recommends 80% of their normal long-acting insulin dose. They should stop their short-acting insulin while they're fasting or not eating until they're eating and drinking properly again. And they need to have a variable rate insulin infusion alongside a glucose, sodium chloride and potassium infusion and this is sometimes called a sliding scale to carefully control their insulin, glucose and potassium balance. Finally, let's talk about venous thromboembolism prophylaxis or VTE prophylaxis. Every patient admitted to hospital should be assessed for their risk of venous thromboembolism. This refers to their risk of developing blood clots, for example, deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Surgery, particularly where the patient is likely to be immobilised for a prolonged period, for example, orthopaedic surgery, significantly increases the risk of blood clots developing. There are local and national policies on measures to reduce the risk of thromboembolism and these might include low molecular weight heparin, for example, anoxaparin, DOAX, for example, apixaban or rivaroxaban, which may be used as an alternative to low molecular weight heparin, intermittent pneumatic compression, which is cuffs that go around the legs and intermittently inflate to squeeze the legs and keep the blood flowing, and anti-embolic compression stockings, which are tight stockings that help squeeze the legs and keep the blood flowing. So thanks for listening to this episode on pre-operative assessment. I hope you're enjoying the new series on surgery. As always, a big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing the podcast. I keep an eye out on iTunes and some of the other podcast apps for people's ratings and reviews and comments, and I really appreciate all the kind words. It's very motivating to keep this podcast going and I'm really glad that it's helping people with their revision. And I hope you join me for the next episode in a couple of days time where we'll talk about consent and capacity.